Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Welcome once again to the mansion on the hill, the house of strange, the palace of mystery. This is the home of Terry's mysterious moments. This is season five. We thank you for listening to the show. Hey there, friends and fellow Mysterians. This is Terry from Texas. Got some new stories for you, so let's jump right on in. In 1893, a man named Holly Harvey Crippen married his second wife. Apparently, his first wife had nothing to do historically, so she doesn't exist in this story. He married the lady named Cora Turner in Jersey City in the United States. Seven years later, in 1900, they moved to London, England, where he was employed as a representative for Munion's Remedies, a company that was making homeopathic remedies, while Cora, using the name Bell Elmore, had aspirations to be a music hall artist. Unfortunately, Belle had no talent whatsoever. Sadly, her greatest fame was not achieved on the stage, but posthumously because of the bizarre circumstances surrounding her death. In fact, neither Belle nor Cora was the real name of Mrs. Crippen. She had been born Kunigunde Makamatsky and was the daughter of a Russian-Polish father and a German mother. She also was a most overbearing and dominant character. Her long-suffering husband supported her ambitions to be first an opera singer, then when that didn't work out, a singer in the music hall. But she had very little success. All she did manage to get out of her career was a few show business friends and the position of treasurer of the Music Hall Ladies Guild in London. According to members of the community, the Crippens did little together but quarrel, and often very publicly. In September 1905, Dr. Crippen and his wife took a lease on 39 Hilldrop Crescent in Holloway. Part of the thinking behind this move was that the pair could now have separate bedrooms. Bill had never been a really sexual person, And according to what Crippen would later say, all physical relations between them ended in 1907. Crippen, meanwhile, had fallen in love. The object of his desire was Ethel Laneve, a typist who worked for him. At about the same time that Crippen stopped having relations with Bell, he and Ethel started having relations. This situation continued till 1910. 
On the evening of Monday, the 31st of January, 1910, the Crippens threw a dinner party for two close friends of Bell's, Paul and Clara Martinetti. The meal passed pleasantly enough, except for one incident. Paul Martinelli had asked to use the toilet, and because Crippen didn't escort him upstairs to show him where it was, Bell berated him. By the time the Martinettis finally left, it was around 1 a.m. on Monday, February 1st. It would be the last time that anyone saw Belle Elmore alive. After the dispute at the party, she went missing. Over the next week or so, people began to ask where Belle was. Crippen said she had gone to America. As the days passed, this story was amended and now she had fallen ill. Finally, Crippen told people that his wife had passed away. There was, however, one problem with this. Ethel Leneve had started wearing some of Belle's jewelry and by the end of February, she had moved in with Crippen at Hilldrop Crescent. Friends grew suspicious and in due course, those suspicions were passed on to the police. Her husband kept insisting Cora had gone to California, but her friend, professional strong woman, Kate Williams suspected foul play and went to Scotland Yard. Suspicion had grown as the pretty young Ethel Neve moved in and began wearing Cora's jewelry and mink coat. When Scotland Yard turned up at his house to investigate, he was gone. But the coppers discovered a dismembered torso in his cellar and the chase was on. Crippen and a cross-dressing Neve were spotted on a ship headed to Canada and quickly caught upon their arrival. Crippen's story is most often remembered for being the first where a telegraph communication, in this case from a boat captain to Scotland Yard, was used to collar a criminal. Nonetheless, there's something deeply creepy about a man who had murdered his wife, leave her body in the basement, wrap his lover in her clothes and happily live in their home until suspicion loomed too large. By all accounts, Crippen was not a bold man. He was typically described as mild-mannered, especially in contrast to his big and brassy wife. But clearly, there was something sinister in his soul, inspiring him to poison his wife, hide the body, and effectively recast her with his doting assistant. Imagine this intimate tale of betrayal and murder if it could be made into a harrowing domestic thriller for the ages. The Doodler, also known as the Black Doodler, is an unidentified serial killer believed responsible for up to 16 murders and three assaults of men in San Francisco, California between January 1974 and September 1975. This was the deceptively mundane name given to an uncaught serial killer who terrorized the gay community of San Francisco's Tenderloin District in the 1970s. The nickname was given due to the perpetrator's habit of sketching his victims prior to their encounters and slayings by stabbing. The perpetrator met his victims at gay nightclubs, bars, and restaurants. He got his name from his bizarre modus operandi that would begin at a bar 
where he had sketched a portrait of the target to break the ice. But if this flirtation led outside of the Tenderloin's gay clubs, things turned gruesome with the doodler stabbing his victim to death, horrendously mutilating their bodies. But why, with the trio of surviving witnesses, did the doodler remain at large? All of his victims were believed to be gay men, either openly or closeted, drag queens, leather daddies, or more button-down types. It's said that one of these was a diplomat and another a prominent entertainer, and neither would dare testify if it meant potentially outing themselves in a deeply homophobic society where their livelihoods and families could be threatened. The doodler's identity remains unknown. Police questioned a young man as a murder suspect in the case, but could not proceed with any criminal charges because the three surviving victims did not want to out themselves by testifying against him in court. The suspect cooperated with police during his interview, but he never admitted guilt for the murders and, and attacks. Officers stated that they strongly believed that the man in question was responsible for the crimes, but he was never tried or convicted because of the survivor's refusal to appear. To date, the suspect has not been named publicly or apprehended. Very little information is available to the public about the crimes. Two other potential suspects arose in 1977 after a pair of men from Redondo Beach were arrested in Riverside County, California and questioned on suspicion of approximately 28 murders that, like the San Francisco killings, occurred after homosexual encounters. While there's plenty of lurid details in the Doodler case, it could be interesting to see a chilling crime drama made from it, like David Fincher's movie Zodiac, which was another San Francisco set murder mystery. In that film, Fincher managed to make the case of independent investigator Robert Graysmith's book while revealing the disturbing details of the Zodiac's crimes along with the cultural setting that they played such a role in. This type of treatment could only make for a fascinating film, but also might shine a light on the injustice of his victims. But imagine if a well-thought-out presentation could renew interest and possibly help identify the murderer or murderers. This next story is well known. The Overton Bridge in Dumbarton, Scotland has been described as picturesque, overlooking a rolling valley rich with vibrant forests. But it's a place that carries the dark legacy of doggy suicide. This is not a subject that brings much to mind as it's not a common occurrence, except at this bridge. Over the past 50 years, 50 dogs, maybe more, have leapt seemingly without warning over the bridge's edge, many falling 50 feet to their death. Most of these suicidal leaps have happened from the same section of the bridge on the right-hand side between its two final parapets. Even stranger, all of the dogs who have died this way are reported to have been long-nosed breeds like Labradors, Collies, and Retrievers 
Some say the bridge is haunted and insist it's his creepy catalyst that also spurred a local man to hurl his infant son, whom he believed to be the Antichrist, off its side in 1994. After all, Overton is Celtic for the Thin Place, an area where this world and the next one are said to be very close. This is one of those stories so strange it can't help but draw your attention. While this series of doggy suicides is a modern phenomenon in Dumbarton, this story is suited to a more gothic setting of high collars and stiff upper lips. Think something in the vein wherein an outsider comes into a small town that is experiencing a bizarre phenomenon. At first, this newcomer is cynical about the local lore, but upon seeing the strange events happen before his very eyes, is forced to reconsider and thus begins a cryptic ghost story. A persistent murder mystery that has served as a bogeyman tale for generations to the locals of Hagley, England, began on April 18th of 1943, when four boys snuck onto the privately owned Hagley Woods to go hunting. While scaling a tree, they came across a human skeleton crammed in the trunk. Despite fear of retribution for their poaching, the police were called in and soon the body was unearthed, raising more questions than answers. Found in a witch hazel tree was the body of a young woman the public took to calling Belladonna or Bella. The body was whole except for a hand found buried nearby. She's believed to have been killed roughly 18 months before in October of 1941. And placed in the tree before rigor mortis had set in. Taffeta lodged into her mouth suggested she was suffocated to death, possibly with her own dress. With World War II raging, there was little time to solve this mystery of a murdered girl, but Bella, while gone, was not forgotten. In 1944, graffiti appeared in Birmingham demanding, who put Bella down the witch elm, Hagley Wood. Variants of this phrase continued to appear. The current location of her skeleton is unknown. It's a sad and strange story that has inspired a string of songs and apparently graffiti artists. Everything from witchcraft to German spies to wild American servicemen, which probably wasn't a thing in 1941 since we didn't get into the war till the end of 1941, have been accused of leading to the death of this Bella. Was she a victim of the black arts? Or as one letter to newspapers in 1943 claimed, was she a spy in league with the Luftwaffe? With so many years passing and no clue where the body is literally buried, we may never know. But the graffiti is an intriguing development, like someone is still calling out for justice for a fallen friend or sister. Imagine Bella's story spun into one of intrigue, where she is part of a top secret group that ultimately gets her killed. Perhaps parallel her story with one of a contemporary agent who uncovers a secret about Bella, maybe how she was double-crossed, and now her own life is at risk. A gripping horror, thriller, or intrigue, conspiracy and murder, 
could definitely be spun from this unanswered English query. This may well be cited as one of the inspirations for American horror story, Murder House, as the goings-on within the Congelier mansion are totally spine-tingling. Once located at 1129 Ride Avenue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the sprawling house began its sad history with the coming of Charles Wright Congelier, his wife Lida, and their servant girl Essie. The Congelier marriage was severed in the winter of 1871 when Lida caught Essie and Charles in flagrante delicto and responded by fatally stabbing him and decapitating her. That's pretty harsh, I'd say. This was just the beginning of the house's horror, though. 1900 brought Dr. Adolf C. Brunrichter. He caused an explosion in the home that blew out windows and brought police who uncovered his ghoulish experiments that involved attempting to reanimate the heads of dead young women. From there, stories of weeping ghosts arose, drawing the interest of Thomas Edison, who came to investigate, attempting to use one of his inventions to communicate with the dead. The house was destroyed utterly in 1927, when an industrial accident of the Equitable Gas Company blew a portion of Pittsburgh to smithereens. Righteous reprisal? As loaded with ghastly stories as this mansion was, there are lots of sources of dark inspiration here. But imagine the Thomas Edison angle. Consider a man we hold up as a grand inventor, a man of science, dabbling with a device to talk to the dead. You know, at first glance, Colorado doesn't look like a particularly scary place. Whether you're stuck in Denver traffic or enjoying a weekend skiing in the mountains, nothing overt about the Centennial State makes it odd or unsettling or disturbing until you look a little deeper, that is. Colorado has a long, fascinating historical story to tell and parts of that story are filled with events so gruesome and unbelievable they make modern horror movies look tame and predictable. The unsettling stories are real events that took place in Colorado and they're not recommended for the faint of heart. From a Rocky Mountain carnivore committing one of the state's most famous murders to a mile-high Spider-Man creeping in the shadows, Colorado boasts a history of scary figures. Let's look at some of the state's creepier facts and events that took place over the years. Shameless politicians, dismembered bodies, and a shady undertaker. This is the story of Cheeseman Park. Before Cheeseman Park was a park, it was the Mount Prospect Cemetery. Opened in 1859, the cemetery was a popular burial spot for Denver, which was a new booming city at the time. But by the 1880s, <laughs> Mount Prospect fell out of favor with Denverites and had become an eyesore. Denver's solution was to transform the graveyard into a park. 
which it planned to do by digging up bodies and moving them to different locations. Things were slow going at first, with only 700 of the 5,000 bodies being moved in the first couple of years. To speed up the process, Denver officials hired an undertaker named E.P. McGovern to move the remainder of the bodies and paid him for every coffin he moved. To make as much money as possible, McGovern dismembered an untold amount of corpses and added various body parts in different coffins. Reports of dismembered body parts and open coffins caught the city of Denver's attention and McGovern was fired. Probably should have been more than just fired. History justifiably looks back at McGovern and sees a monster. But the city of Denver can also be blamed for what they did next. Instead of transporting the remaining 3,000 bodies, it removed any above-ground traces of the burial sites, built the park, collectively whistled and walked away. Like one would expect, today, Cheeseman Park is a regular hotspot for hauntings and other paranormal activity. Hmm, Quest of Verde lots for sale, anyone? Then there was that one time when Hotel Colorado's basement was used as a morgue. Some say the ground in Glenwood Springs, where Hotel Colorado now stands, was cursed by the Ute Indians, who were displaced from their home in 1880. Others claim they see ghosts and other supernatural phenomena in the hotel. While what people say about Hotel Colorado is certainly unsettling and undeniably creepy, this is about real events that have taken place in Colorado, not ones that can't be proven. In fact, a bona fide terrifying and true story happens to be attached to this mysterious hotel. So spend a night if you're in Colorado and you're looking for a place to get thoroughly creeped out after a relaxing day by soaking at Glenwood's Hot Springs. You'll be living it up at the Hotel Colorado. A wealthy silver magnet banker by the name of Walter Devereaux opened the Hotel Colorado in 1893 at a cost of $850,000. Hotel Colorado might not look like it now, but it was a luxurious destination when it opened and even earned the nickname the Little White House of the West for hosting U.S. Presidents Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft for extended periods. The original teddy bear toy is rumored to have been given to Theodore Roosevelt by the hotel maids. But during World War II, Hotel Colorado was leased by the U.S. Navy and was used as a hospital, thus transforming its reputation for high society grandeur dramatically. In use from 1943 to 1946, the hospital served over 6,500 patients and not all of them left the Hotel Colorado alive. To accommodate deceased patients, the hotel's basement was used as a morgue. Today, two large ovens can still be seen in the basement that were used to cremate the bodies. 
Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for being along for the ride. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. Aaron reads listener stories, mostly ghost stories, sometimes UFOs, sometimes cryptids. On Tuesday, Aaron Frail brings you Aaron's Horror Show, different things that he's written. He reviews movies, books, things like that. On Wednesday, it's me, Terry from Texas, with Terry's Mysterious Moments, where we talk about just about anything there is to talk about. And at the first weekend of the month, we have video from The Witching Hour and Unexplained Cases. Aaron has instituted a new area called Entertaining Short Films. That's exactly what they are. They're just short stories, nothing in particular, no particular genre, just entertaining. Remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have Apple or Android, download the RPA app, which is a black square with a blue eye in the middle of it. Download that to the device that you listen to the program on. Install it, and when you open that up, you can go straight to the Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, and its network. So all the all the stories that are involved with RPA are there, so you don't have to go hunting for them. If you want to contact me at Terry's Mysterious Moments, you can do that on the Facebook page, and it's called Terry's Mysterious Moments, or you can email me at Terry's Mysterious Moments at gmail.com. Contact me if you want to. Let's talk about some things. That's about it. We'll be back again. Listen to the other shows. Have a good week, everybody.